Friends, it has been a while since we had a good assessment to shake up our complacent souls. So this morning, let's all take a short first response quiz. Uh, you got a worship guide when you came in. Open it up. Uh, there's an answer sheet there for you on the right side, and you can, uh, I mean, on the, on, yeah, on the left side, and you can write down your answers. Please, this is for posterity, so try to be honest. No, seriously, choose a response that is closest to what you would actually do in each of these five situations. Five situations for you. First one, when legislation that I wanted fails, my first response is to vent on social media. B, put B if this is you, to write my congressman. C, to turn to a pundit who agrees with me, or D, to pray. Which are you most likely to do? A, B, C, or D? Write it down. Question number two. When we discover a weak leak under our foundation at the house, my first response is A, to scream. Uh, By the way, we're not talking about reaction. Reaction is immediate. You can scream as a reaction. Response is something that has a little bit of thought and purpose to it. So my response is to scream. B, to sue someone, anyone. C, to arrange a marriage between my oldest child and a plumber. Or D, to pray. Question number three. When I'm bored, my first response is A, turn on media or otherwise demand other people entertain me. B, spend money. C, overeat. And by the way, if you look at that, basically we just covered all of life. This is childhood, this is a teenager, and this is adulthood right here. And then D, (laughs) sorry, D is to pray. Question number four. When my mother is very sick, my first response is A, to yell at a caregiver. B, to sue someone, anyone. C, to study illnesses on the Internet. (laughs) Always a terrible idea. D, to pray. Last question, number five. When I have sinned, my first response is A, to hate myself as unforgivable, or B, to blame others, C, to run from God in embarrassment, or D, all of the above. No, D, to pray. All right. I trust that you see a pattern there besides the lawsuits. The best response to each and every situation is what, everybody? D, to pray. Many of the other responses were fine. There's even a time and place for filing lawsuits. But the only best response is to pray first. This is why Jesus' prayer list contains a comment about our daily bread. This is a daily thing. It's why Paul commands that we pray without ceasing. How many of us actually live that way? Let let me put it like this. Raise your hand if you gave any answer other than D to any of the questions in our assessment. You gave any answer other than D. Raise your hand. Really high. Let me see them. Okay, that's a lot of hands. Hands down. Looking at those commands from God and our assessment, most of us admit that we need to work on our prayer lives, right? Right. But you are surely wondering in your favorite uh, mater voice uh, from the Cars movies, this is for you guys, um, besides the obvious step of practice, what's a great way to learn to play, McQueen? That's a great question. Thank you, Mater. I'm so glad you asked. One of the best means for learning any first response is study a prime example. Role models, do you know this? Role models make a huge difference in our lives. They subtly shift not only our reactions, they actually shift our responses. I want to show you a fascinating statement from a philosophy professor, uh, Christian Miller. He teaches at Wake Forest University, and he says this. We are confronted with what I call the character gap. There is the virtuous person we should be. There is who we actually are. And there is a big difference between the two. The good news is our characters aren't carved in stone. There are several ways we can all become better people, including role models. Role models can help us see the world in a new way, reshape our imagination, serve as great sources of wisdom and advice, and perhaps most importantly, inspire us to change. 
In his book, Dr. Miller goes on to reference a study, fascinating study. Uh, it was a combination of Western Ontario University and Oxford University, and it was a study about how role models inspire better behavior. Listen to this. Unsuspecting participant in this study was paired with an actor, okay? And they were in a room at the university, and they were taking a completely bogus survey that was what they thought they were there to do, what the participant thought they were there to do. When he or she finished the survey and the actor finished their survey, they were sent across the campus. They had to walk through this really long hallway to another part of the university building, and on their way to the office where they were going to be paid for being part of the study, they had to walk past a blood donation sign-up table, a blood drive sign-up table. Get this. When the actor stopped to register for the blood drive, so did two-thirds of the participants. 18 out of 27 people, when they saw somebody else do something, they were inspired to respond the same way, and then, oh, that's, they did it too. In the control group, not one person stopped. 27 people in the control group, they all just walked right on by because nobody showed them to do it. You and I need to stop walking on past the Lord. We, we need to pray first, even though sometimes it seems scary or hard, like giving blood. How are we going to change? We're going to learn from our role model, Nehemiah. Open your Bible to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah chapter 1. Let's go to the very beginning of Nehemiah. It's right after Ezra, just before Esther. Nehemiah chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hekilah. During the month of Kislev in the 20th year, when I was in the fortress city of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers arrived with men from Judah, and I questioned them about Jerusalem and the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. They said to me, the remnant in the province who survived the exile are in great trouble and disgrace. Jerusalem's wall has been broken down and its gates have been burned down. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept. I mourned for a number of days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, Yahweh, the God of heaven, the great and awe-inspiring God who keeps His gracious covenant with those who love Him and keeps His commands. Let your eyes be open and your ears be attentive to hear your servant's prayer that I now pray to you day and night for your servants, the Israelites. I confess the sins we've committed against you. Both I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted corruptly toward you, have not kept the commands, statutes, and ordinances you gave your servant Moses. Please remember what you commanded your servant Moses. If you're unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But... If you return to me and carefully observe my commands, even though your exiles were banished to the ends of the earth, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place where I chose to have my name dwell. They are your servants and your people. You redeemed them by your great power and strong hand. Please, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and that of your servants who delight to revere your name. Give your servant success today as have compassion on him in the presence of this man. At that time, I was the king's cupbearer. This is Nehemiah's disciplined prayer. He appears to have prayed like this often. In fact, this seems to be a summary of a number of prayers written down for us. Uh, let me give you a quick review of his situation just in case you couldn't be with us last time. About a hundred years before Nehemiah begins, the Babylonian armies had smashed Jerusalem. Um, during that destruction, the rebellious Jews suffered three deportations to Babylon. You can, you can see them laid out on this crude diagram up here. Uh, we've used the names of the books that describe each deportation. So Daniel describes the first one, 605 B.C., Ezekiel the second one, and Jeremiah observed the last one. Um, during the years that they were in captivity, in exile, the land of Israel was nearly desolate. Folks, the, 
every wall in the country appears to have been torn down. We can only find a lot of archaeological evidence of destruction, very little evidence of them living. They, they seem to have lived in very tiny little hamlets, unsafe places. But after that third deportation described by Jeremiah, uh, the people were miraculously returned back to their land. There was an amazing fulfillment of the prophecies of Isaiah and Jeremiah. Jeremiah had said it would be exactly 70 years, and it was exactly 70 years before they came back. Isaiah said before this person had ever existed, that some guy named Cyrus would be the great leader of the Medes. And sure enough, a guy named Cyrus the Great became leader of the Medo-Persian Empire. They conquered Babylon, and he issued this most famous edict, the Cyrus Cylinder, which allowed the Jews to return back to their land. Zerubbabel led the first return, 736 B.C. Ezra, quite a bit of time later, the second return. And then a very small group comes with Nehemiah later in this book, about 445 B.C. Now, when they returned, they found their homeland beleaguered, considerably smaller. Let me just summarize this way. Judah was surrounded by antagonistic neighbors to whom the Edict of Cyrus came as a profound disappointment. Um, all that's what Nehemiah already knows. But in verse 3, he learns something he didn't know, that all their restoration efforts in the land have been stymied. Here's why he's so shocked. Think of it like this. It would be as if you and your family lost everything in a fire, Okay. You lost everything. It's horrible. But then you got the insurance money and, and you started to rebuild. Now imagine 90 years later, your relatives find out that nothing's been finished. That your grandkids are living in the unsafe, burned out shell of the old house because neither you nor your kids nor your grandkids have ever finished the rebuilding process. It's, it's astonishing, right? That's why Nehemiah can't help but cry. And his first response is what? What's D to what, everybody? Pray. In verses 5 through 11, we have one of the longer recorded prayers in the Bible. Please notice the elements of this prayer. There are four elements of this prayer. First, he acknowledges God's greatness. That's what you see in the first of verse 5, Yahweh. He remembers God's promises, second part of verse 5 and a, a big chunk of verses 8 through 10. He remembers God's promises. See, uh, third thing he does is confess sin. You see that in verse 6. And then he presents very specific requests in verse 11. Now, here's what's really interesting. Those same elements appear in all prayers that we see throughout the Bible. Daniel prays this way. So, so does David. So does Jeremiah. Even the Lord's Prayer contains those same four elements. The prayer list that Jesus taught his disciples in, in Luke 11 and in Matthew chapter 6, it contains the same components of Nehemiah's prayer. Read with me. Famous passage from Matthew chapter 6. Jesus said, pray then like this, everyone. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. Look at the chart up here on your slide. Jesus said, when you pray, say this, Our Father. That's, rem that's remembering the most important promise of all. That, that, that people who trust in the Lord have God Himself as their Father. That, did you know this is why the earliest Christians would not teach the Lord's Prayer to anybody unless that person had shown that they were a believer in Jesus Christ? 
because they didn't think it was appropriate for anybody else to pray that prayer because only people who believe in Jesus have God as their father. In fact, by the way, for the first 200 years of Christianity, we don't have any sign it was ever called the Lord's Prayer. They called it the Believer's Prayer all the time. They called this the Believer's Prayer. So, so you start with remembering God's promises. Then, then he says, who art in heaven, holy be your name. That's acknowledging God's greatness. He presents specific requests. Look at all of them. Your will be done. Give us our daily bread. Lead us. Deliver us. And then he confesses sin. Forgive us our debts. Now, if that's the standard prayer for Nehemiah and Jesus, don't you think those same aspects should probably be disciplines in our prayers as well? So, so look in your notes. I'll give you a little chart there. The elements of biblical prayer. Acknowledge God's greatness. Who art in heaven, holy be your name. Remember God's promises. Lord, remember your promises. Our Father, confess sin. I have sinned. My Father's house is sin. Forgive us our, our debts. Present specific requests, our daily bread. Lead us, deliver us. Give me help in the midst with this man. When you and I pray, we should regularly extol God's greatness and remember God's promises. We should confess sin and present specific requests with gratitude. All God's people said, amen. That's how we pray. Now, look at chapter 2, because in chapter 2, we have another prayer, and this time, Nehemiah prays under stress. Let's read chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. During the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was set before him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had never been sad in his presence. So the king said to me, why are you sad when you aren't sick? This is nothing but depression. I was overwhelmed with fear and replied to the king, may the king live forever. Why should I not be sad when the city where my ancestors are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king asked me, what is your request? So I prayed to the God of heaven and answered the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor with you, send me to Judah and to the city where my ancestors are buried so that I may rebuild it. Nehemiah prays under stress. By the way, that's a headline you see on the right side of your notes. He doesn't only recite a standard prayer list, he also prays on the spot when he faces great stress. Now, why would I call this stressful? Two reasons. The first one uh, is because Nehemiah has been chewing on all this for about four months. Nisan, our, uh, that month for the Jewish calendar, falls pretty much in our April, uh, March to April time period. That month comes four months after he first got news about the starry state of Jerusalem. You ever work on a problem for four months? Worrying over something that long is stressful. Second, this is stressful because there are layers of political danger here that you and I struggle to understand. Let me try to explain. Most of us have grown up with, with a Western, independent understanding of personal freedom, right? The Declaration of Independence runs very deeply in our DNA. Our ideas of liberty are very individual. Uh, our heroes are the bold rogues who, on their own initiative, battle evil, right? That is all extremely different from what Nehemiah lived under in Persia. Even people today, you meet people today sometimes when you travel who have grown up under very difficult modern totalitarian regimes. But even they don't grasp the full power of the Persian monarchy. The medieval idea of divine right kingship gets close, but the Persian emperor ruled by more than just divine right. Here's how he was understood. He was understood a lot more like how Roman Catholics see the Pope. Okay, that's what he was like. Um, the, the Persian word for this was far-i-izadi, far-i-izadi. It, uh, you haven't learned a Persian word lately, have you? It's time for a fancy word. Okay, on the count of three, far-i-izadi. One, two, three. No, no, you got to trill the R. This is Persian. Good heavens, that was terrible. All right, one, two, three. Far-i-izadi. One, two, three. 
Far'i Izadi. Very good. Give it, give, it, give it away. Yeah, that's right. So Far'i Izadi. What Far'i Izadi is, it's a special grace that the gods bestow on the great king. And, and it endows him with strength and insight. And this is most important for our text. It enables him through his very presence to overcome anything evil or negative. He overcomes with his presence all the forces of evil. The Greek historian Herodotus, who, who lived in the, the same age as Nehemiah, he called this Persian view of kingship, and I quote, mystical and singular in the world, close quote. One did not get ill in the emperor's presence. You could not be depressed. Think it through. It's supposedly impossible because this king exuded health and, and wellness that overcomes any evil. It makes negativity incredibly unreasonable. Anybody who was negative in the presence of the great king was killed. Was killed. It made sense. They had to be because they obviously were either defective or demonic. Because Far'i Izadi says that there should be no chance for anybody to be depressed in his presence. So if anyone is, there must be something serious wrong with them. They could be a threat to the kingdom, and they are eliminated. Now we understand why Nehemiah was rightly fearful when the king noted that he was upset. This is a life-or-death situation. So look what Nehemiah did. He prayed to Yahweh. Specifically, he tells us he prayed to Elohim Shamaim. Elohim Shamaim, this is so subtly brilliant. This is the God who is over all even the king of Persia. Lest you think that he seeks primary help from the most powerful man on earth, Nehemiah makes it clear he prays to God alone. This is so counterculture. According to the Persian world in which he lived and breathed, Nehemiah is in the presence of the one person who can overcome the forces of evil. Only Artaxerxes has the vision and the power to provide what Nehemiah wants, which is protection for his hometown of Jerusalem. But Nehemiah prays only to God. Now, he honors Artaxerxes. He gives the ritual positive greeting. May he live forever. That's fine. He even asks the king for help. He honors him. But when the king answers positively, and you and I are looking at the text, it's clear this blessing came from whom, everybody? Who did it come from? From God. It was not the king, not even his possibly sympathetic queen that opens the way for Nehemiah. It is God alone. One more thing. One more thing. Not only does Nehemiah pray to Yahweh, he also speaks truthfully in the presence of power. Look, look at what he says. He doesn't give in to anxiety like most of us would. He doesn't make excuses. That's what people usually do. Not honest Nehemiah. He tells it like it is. He is in the presence of a man who is not supposed to ever hear or see anything negative. But look at the words he uses. Sad, buried, ruins, destroyed, fire. Those are very negative terms. You never spoke terms like that in the presence of a Persian emperor. But Nehemiah does. Now, he's not doing it just to be a downer. It's because he's merely speaking the truth. So what about us? What do we do when we face serious danger or stress? Nehemiah would say that we should pray to God, Elohim Shemaim, and be honest about the situation. Are we willing to do what Nehemiah did? I'm really concerned about this. It seems to me, at least, that Christians today are afraid. They are afraid of even mild ridicule from anybody in authority. Our skin is so thin so thin, I, I, I see three regular responses, none of which are healthy. We are rude to power. That's not appropriate. We are dishonest in admitting our pains. No, everything's fine, everything's fine. Or, or we turn to human solutions instead of Elohim Shemaim. Just recently, somebody wrote me and asked me about handling a very anxious situation. And I said this about anxiety. I said anxiety is like sliding on ice in a car. If you try to brake hard or you turn with the slide, you're in trouble. Gently turn against it, and it stops before too long. Nehemiah doesn't try to break. It's fascinating. He doesn't, 
What most people do is, is apologize and force a smile and say, no, no, no nothing's wrong, nothing's wrong, you imagine. No, no, I'm fine, everything's fine. I'm just, see how fine we are? Right. That's as silly as, as stomping on your car brakes when you're on ice. And neither does Nehemiah turn with the slide into danger when he feels this sickening change in momentum right here in chapter 2. He doesn't panic. He doesn't look to the king for help. He doesn't pray to Artaxerxes like all those other fools did. That would be like turning with a skid and losing control. Oh, Nehemiah feels the stress of the slide, but he turns into the skid. He turns to God who is over all. And don't think this is only for other people. Every one of us has anxious, needy moments all the time. And in those moments, we need to turn into the slide and seek God. We need to pray. Our enslaved forefathers in Christ understood this actually, I think, much better than we do, sadly. One of their great Negro spiritual songs was titled, It's Me, O Lord. I learned this song in my public school elementary music class, and I have never, ever forgotten it. It says, It's Me, O Lord. number of different tunes. Here's the one I learned. It's me, it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's me, it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Sing it with me. I want you to learn this too, and I hope you never forget it, because guess what? Every one of us stands in the need of prayer. So learn the song. Here we go. It's me, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's me, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not my brother or my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord. Wow, you're good. Holy cow. That was awesome. You're good. Okay, we're starting from the top. That was too pretty. All right. From the top, it's me, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's me, it's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not my brother or my sister, but it's me, O oh Lord. Standing in the need of prayer. Amen. Not my stranger or a neighbor, but it's me, O oh Lord. All God's people said, Amen. Amen. Nehemiah was a person of prayer. You and I are in need as well. We are always standing in the need of prayer, and we must be praying people as well. Now, look at the next kind of prayer for which our role model is known. Turn over to chapter 4, just for a brief section. Chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. Let me give you just a very brief outline situation. We will study all this in a few days. Um, Nehemiah, spoiler alert, Nehemiah gets to go back to Jerusalem, okay? And when he goes back, they're doing this physical work of rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. And there are these horrible, horrible, self-interested, nasty people who both politically and physically are working against them. And and this is what Nehemiah prays in that situation. Chapter 4, verse 4. Listen, our God, for we are despised. Make their insults return on their own heads. And let them be taken to, as plunder to a land of captivity. Do not cover their guilt or let their sin be erased from your sight because they have provoked the builders. A little bit later in Nehemiah, he ends up, we'll also study this later, he ends up having a, a brilliant spiritual impact, a beautiful biblical revival is going on. And there were people who were working against that as well. Ooh, very nasty spiritually undermining, lying, uh, twisting Scripture. And look at his prayer. Very similar prayer. Chapter 6, verse uh, 14. Chapter 6, verse 14, Nehemiah says, My God, remember Tobiah and Sanballat for what they've done. Also Noadiah, the prophetess, and the other prophets who wanted to intimidate me. These are imprecatory prayers. Okay? Nehemiah prays imprecation. The, The The point for today in these passages is that these were people who lied and cheated and worked against both the physical well-being, the the wall-building work Nehemiah was doing, and the biblical revival that, that he was helping to lead. These are very bad people. And Nehemiah 
calls God's judgment. He asks God to punish them. It really wasn't too long ago I taught on imprecation. You and I were studying the Psalms, and we taught on Let me give you a quick review about this very misunderstood but very important kind of prayer. Imprecatory prayers, that is, prayers that call for judgment, are especially important. Listen now. They are especially important in eras where absolute truth is unwelcome. We, we see lots of imprecation when people want to hold on to their own truths rather than God's real absolute truth. That's why we see a lot more of these kinds of prayers around 1000 B.C. and 500 B.C. Do you know why? Because about 1000 B.C. and 500 B.C. There, were, there was pretty strong spirit of no absolute sophistry that was disrupting the world of thought. In particular, these false prophets will always turn right and wrong upside down. Here's the main thing. They will refuse to call evil what it is. And it's not just a problem for other people. You and I struggle with the reticence to call evil what it is. All of us are guilty of this brand of untruth. Augustine said it brilliantly long, long ago. He said, we love the truth when it enlightens us, and we despise the truth when it accuses us. This has always been a human problem, which isn't to say that our day doesn't have its own ugly uh, expressions. I was corresponding with a friend of mine about this and, and about how our culture finds it very hard to call evil evil. And he wrote me back a brilliant comment. Look what he wrote. He said, Wayne, this is a very relevant topic. By God's grace and the indwelling spirit, our very souls see, know, and long for righteousness. Yet daily we are inundated with psychotic babble posing as truth. Veiled in plastic virtue, the intelligentsia extolled confusion, making truth relative, wrong fashionable, and right a matter of opinion. All while the world buys its approval. One can feel like the only living that sees the big yellow signs. Warning, cliff ahead, close quote. Very well said. Again, this isn't just a modern problem. In some ways, it was even more difficult to stand on truth under the often very oppressive monarchies of earlier times. I mean, look at that big head. Um, but in all times... In all times, when evil is called good and the very idea of righteousness is persecuted, when a culture is running like lemmings off a cliff of lies, the Bible has the answer. In Scripture, God leads His people to employ imprecatory prayers. Of course, you're no doubt asking in that Yoda accent that you love to throw down, hmm, what a prayer imprecatory is, hmm? Good question. Thank you so much for asking. I'm so glad you asked. Imprecatory prayers call down judgment on the enemies of Yahweh, on, on the enemies of Yahweh's people and on the enemies of truth. Psalm 69 is probably the best known. Uh, by the way, the word imprecation is not biblical. It's a later Latin term. It was invented to describe these prayers. It combines a Latin word for in with a Latin word for to pray. So you're praying that God is in this horrible situation. Um, sadly, very few people today understand imprecatory prayers and how important they are for these seasons where truth is being perverted. In fact, I know very few people in this age who will pray God's truth. And you know why? Usually it's because we think this is kind of bad. We think imprecation must be kind of mean or negative. It's not. Nehemiah knows better. He knows that the focus of imprecation is positive. It, it helps us mortify sin because we're motivated by God's love. We want to be like Him who saves us. We hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's why we hate sin. And that's why we pray imprecations. That's why we mortify sin. We call it what it is. Because God is just and He is righteous. And we want all people to enjoy the rewards of righteousness and avoid the consequences of sin. Amen? Okay, let's bring all this home. Remember what we learned about role models. Back to Dr. Miller's quote. Role models can help us see the world in a new way. Reshape our imagination, serve as great sources of wisdom and advice, and perhaps most importantly, inspire us to change. 
Having looked at some of Nehemiah's prayers, we are challenged to change. Nehemiah challenges us to pray and to pray with discipline and determination and honesty, even under stress. But why is it so hard? You know, through this whole study, it's funny how many of us are just kind of squirming or people who usually look at me are looking down, you know. It's because we feel this horrible shame. Frankly, we don't pray much at all. And I know some have tried and just can't seem to get the, the, the role of it, seem to get into it. Why? Why is it so hard? Randall Satchel, one of our Frisco Bible elders, sent me a great answer. He wrote me this week. He said, Wayne, prayer is a discipline because it's hard. I'm not talking about popcorn prayers, those two-second help me or thank you thoughts that we offer up at a moment's notice throughout the day. I'm talking about sustained prayer, drinking deeply from the well of communion with your God. Our overloaded schedules, along with our addiction to constant updates and entertainment, war against the basic factors which make sustained prayer possible, silent wakefulness and undistracted mental focus. He goes on. It takes countercultural discipline to keep a schedule which prioritizes sleep in order to prioritize wakefulness for prayer. It takes a countercultural discipline to turn off or ignore for a time the crowd at your fingertips incessantly clamoring for your attention. Building Jerusalem's walls required countercultural discipline from Nehemiah. Building a habit of sustained prayer requires the same from us. Close quote. Now, Randall brought up Nehemiah's great work on the walls, which we'll be studying, and I tell you, that work is going to be hard. It, Truth is, in fact, that Nehemiah is sailing straight into a set of very serious, stormy battles. And the same is true for you and me, right? As we leave here, we are sailing into a storm. Maybe a snowstorm, by the way. Anyway, um, <clears throat> seriously, it's a jungle out there. And given that reality, the most important thing we can do is what, folks? A, B, C, or D? Pray. David Wade of our pulpit team put it this way. He said, um, he said, I'm struck by how Nehemiah's physical situation parallels our spiritual situation, with Paul, which Paul lays out in Ephesians 6. Nehemiah was faced with overwhelming power of earthly kingdoms, even though he went as the servant of the great king. Likewise, we are faced with overwhelming spiritual power, even though we go as servant of the king of kings. The difference is Nehemiah immediately recognized his situation and prayed, whereas I frequently assume it's up to me. Close quote. Here's the passage David referred to, Ephesians chapter 6. For our battle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the world powers of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavens. This is why you must take up the full armor of God, so that you may be able to resist in the evil day, and having prepared everything, take your stand. Stand, therefore, with truth like a belt around your waist, righteousness like armor on your chest, and your feet sandaled with the readiness for the gospel of peace. In every situation, take the shield of faith, and with it you'll be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is God's Word. Pray at all times in the Spirit with every prayer and request, and stay alert in all this with perseverance and intercession for all the saints. Beautiful. But what does it mean practically? Besides when you have small children buying them cute little armor at the Christian store, what, what does this really mean? How does one live this out? Let me walk you through an example. Here's something that I recommend. Pray this, the breastplate of righteousness. Lord, apart from you there is no righteousness. But in Jesus I have been born again. And I have been imputed with righteousness. I've been made righteous in your sight. Make... Make me live out that righteousness, impart that righteousness 
the belt of truth. Lord, may your truth rule in my heart and be in my mind and on my lips today. The shield of faith, Lord, may I take you at your word concerning promises about the present and the, and the future, promises about everlasting love and abundant life and so, so much more. Feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Lord, I pray that the gospel is in my words and actions, that through me, with every step, I leave a, a drop of grace, that in every encounter, other people are drawn closer to you. The helmet of salvation, remind me, Lord, nothing can separate me from your love, that I have been saved by grace. Help me to walk in a manner worthy of that calling. The sword of the Spirit, which, which is the Word of God. Lord, may your Holy Spirit reign in my life and bring to mind just the right Bible verses to be in my heart and on my lips. May I be filled with the Spirit, which means yielded to you and ready with Scripture, just like you were, Jesus, when, when the devil tempted you. And finally, verse 18, keep me in an attitude of prayer, Lord. Remind me to pray in the Spirit on all occasions. Cause me to be alert and praying for the saints, to be joyful and give thanks in everything. Because you tell me in First Thessalonians, that's your will for me is to pray like that. And by the way, I adapted all that from Dean Writing's wonderful prayer journal called Pray. You can get a free copy of it if you go to that link that is, that is on your screen. Now, take that Pauline prayer, okay, and let's put that with the standard Nehemiah prayer and that, that he and Jesus taught us, and we see that the armor of God is part of remembering God's promises. Think about that armor, these are all things that are promised to us. Look at what the armor contains. It's our assured blessings, word, spirit, gospel, righteousness, grace. This is think. And by the way, speaking of think, notice how much thought there is here. Folks, Christian prayer is not mindless repetition to reach some kind of altered state. Um, 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 womp, womp, bloop, womp. Um, that's, not, that's not what it is. Think about what you're doing. You are talking directly to God. By the way, this exposes a big problem with non-Christian prayer and, and even some Christian traditions like Greek Orthodoxy struggles with this. They, they pray as either a formula or an experience only. Meanwhile, biblical prayer is not like that. Biblical prayer is real, thoughtful conversation with the personal interactive Lord. And with all those scriptural commands in mind, I have two specific challenges for this congregation today. One of them is individual, the other is more corporate. Here's the individual one, individually. I encourage every one of us to pray for 5 to 15 minutes at a start to every day. You can combine this with other disciplines like your, your Bible study, or you can just stand alone. But however you flesh it out, take 5 to 15 minutes to begin your day praying, just like Nehemiah, with discipline and determination and honesty. And be creative with this. For years, there was a particular chair in my house that I would get up and go to, and, uh, and I would pray there, uh, and that was my place. And then that became kind of stale. It, it started actually to become part of a, of a rote thing, a, an almost legalistic thing, so I had to shake it up. So now, I, uh, the last few years, I get up in the morning, and I, I just drop on my knees, and I pray right beside my bed for about 10 minutes, which is very invigorating in the wintertime. Um, the, uh, uh, you certainly wake up. Uh, you do the same. Find the place that you can start your day the way it should be with option D, to pray. Corporately, second thing, this is for all of us. I encourage you to come early or stay late and go to the prayer hall right out here. You know, we used to have quite a few people who would, who would come here before or after every one of our services, and many of them were praying for me or for the, all the other wonderful servants in this church, but lately that number has dropped. Now, I still see folks up here in the prayer hall praying all during the week, and, and that's great. But on Sundays, the prayer has diminished. 
at least it has diminished out here in our boiler room. By the way, I call it that. I, I steal that title from the, uh, the great old uh, British pastor, Charles Spurgeon. Um, Spurgeon called at their London church their prayer hall. He called it the boiler room. It's where the ministry gets all its power. And, uh, and he's right. The same is true for us. That's why it's so wonderful for you to, to come and pray in the prayer hall, our boiler room, before or after a service, alone with others. Just pray for God's work through your church. Amen? May it be so. That's enough talk about prayer. Uh, as Disney said, the way to get started is quit talking and begin doing. So let's do it. Let's spend some time praying, shall we? We're going we're gonna to spend some moments in prayer. In fact, I, I'm going to kneel. I, I find for me physically moving uh, sometimes can spiritually help me move as well. So if you want, I would love to have you come up and pray with me. You can kneel where you're at. You can remain seated. Whatever you wish to do, prepare yourself, get ready, and then let's spend a few moments. I'm going to guide you through some prayer. Let's pray together. Come and get ready. Acknowledge the greatness of God, who art in heaven. Holy be your name. If you, if you haven't done so in a while, I, I, I recommend just spend a moment or two in awe of the name Yahweh. That he calls himself that. that. That means the covenant God who, who will not and cannot break his covenant with you. Our Father. He lets you call him Father because he is. Just be in awe of that. Talk to God about His promises. The beautiful ones contained in the armor of God, as Nehemiah did, the ones contained in Scripture. Remember His promises. Talk with Him about them. No, it's, it's not that he needs reminded. Um, he's God, he knows. But he just loves to talk with you about it. Just, just like those of you that are parents love when your kids talk to you about the good things you've taught them. Now spend a moment confessing sin. Forgive us our debts. I have sinned and my father's house has sinned. Now 
Now, please, please don't shirk it. It's not talking about anybody else's sins. Yes, if you're a believer in Jesus, you are justified by God's grace. But in your sanctification, in your, in your daily life, unconfessed sin has terrible consequences. It estranges your relationship on a daily basis. Confess it, and there is healing, just like James promises. Now present some specific requests, your daily bread, your need for leadership, for deliverance. Present those. Engage with God about the specific things that are in front of you. Father, even as we ache over these specific needs and pains, our requests, it's just so fascinating. We, we find ourselves bubbling with thanksgiving. I know you tell us to present our requests with thanksgiving, but it's just fascinating how those go together. I, I don't understand it, but I'm so grateful for it. I, I think it may have something to do with just the awesome fact that we get to talk directly to you. And we are grateful. So very grateful. I pray that gratitude will overflow into every aspect of our lives. The offering we're about to take is a perfect picture of that. I am thrilled to give your money to the work you're doing in this church around the world. It, because, because I'm in need. And you meet my need. Lord, thank you that you can shape us. I pray Nehemiah is deep in our hearts that we might be people of prayer. I pray this in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.